The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are taking a break from the book of Luke in terms of our normal walk through the book of Luke. We're, we're up into the teens. We're in the back half now, really, of the book of Luke right now. And, and we've paused for the month of December to do a series on Advent, to do an Advent series. Um, and some of you have grown up in churches that had Advent series around the holidays. Some of you grew up in them and don't know what they mean. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say Advent. But Advent is a word, it, it comes from the Latin word Adventus, and it just means coming. And so literally when people talk about Advent within the history of the church, what they're doing is it's this season set aside to focus on the first coming of Jesus, to understand the difficulty of Israel in that day, the darkness of the world that day, the darkness of our own world because of our sin, but the fact that Jesus promised that he would come, that this Messiah was going to come, and and that first arrival, the first birth of Jesus. But it's not just about looking back on the birth of Jesus. It's, It's that we can look back on God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises in his first coming, and we can draw from that hope and confidence to know that he's coming again one day to make all things right. So there'll be no more Crohn's disease. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more any of that stuff. Um, As we said in week one, he will crush the head of the serpent and he will make all things right again. So you could say that in looking back, we look forward with hope. That's the purpose of Advent. Um, And some of you have like Advent calendars at home or you grew up with them where each day you open the little thing and you have the little devotional or the little verse or little candy or whatever was in that. Um, Here in the church, we use candles. And the idea is that each candle represents each week as we begin to build on this idea of light growing in the darkness. That in this difficulty and in the darkness of the world around us, this light has come forth. And so each week another candle is lit until on Christmas Eve we'll light the final candle. And this candle right here represents Jesus Christ. It's, if you will, the Jesus candle out of that arrangement. And if you guys have been to our Christmas Eve services, which I really want you guys to come this year, um, you've seen where we'll bring kids up with the little candles, you guys know, and we always light the kids' candles off of the Jesus candle. It's this picture of the light of the world that's come into each of our hearts. And then as those kids make their way out into the congregation, into the audience, and everyone continues to go from candle to candle, that light begins to spread. And it's really just a picture of how the gospel comes into the world and and how Jesus gives his spirit to us and it spreads throughout his people. And it goes from this dark, vacuous area to a place that's full of this warm and inviting light. And it's just a testimony of what Jesus has done for us. And so that's the purpose of this series, to go from darkness to light. And so we started out in week one with hope promised. You guys remember we talked about Israel's difficult situation they were in, the history of the oppression of the region that's there, and how God had promised them and said, there is a hope that's coming. And we talked about how that applies even to us, that even in the fall of man in Genesis 3, that God promised that he was going to send a son that would crush the head of the serpent and make all things great again. So we focused on the promise of hope that was to come. And then last week, Sam took us into Hope Anticipated. And in Hope Anticipated, in that study, he was looking at Isaiah chapter 5 and this idea of that hope that's promised should actually affect the anticipations and the the way that we look at our future. And it culminates in this beautiful passage in Isaiah 40 with that great well-known text that says, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases their strength. 
Even youths shall fail and be weary, and young men will fall exhausted, but they who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. It's a beautiful text. And this week, we move from hope anticipated to hope lived. Like, not just anticipating that that kind of hope is coming, but how does that hope actually uh, um, affect the way that we walk with the Lord right now? And in particular, in the, in the idea of Advent, you're going from darkness to light. So how do we walk through darkness with that sort of hope um, as we're keeping our eyes focused on the light that is to come? That's what we're going to be looking at today, the idea of hope lived. And we're going to do that by looking at Mary. So take a look, if you would, in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to give you grace and allow you to be seated as I read this because there's a lot of text here. But Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, this birth narrative of Jesus Christ, or at least the foretelling of his birth to Mary. says, verse 26, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And in those days, Mary arose and she went with haste into the hill country to the town in Judah. And she entered there the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her womb leapt and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, or you might say, sang, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. 
And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. It's a beautiful story, the story of Mary. Now, we're going to spend some time talking about Mary. And some of you, we actually, there's, there's actually a weird uh, growing number of people with a lot of Catholic background, we've noticed, been coming to Heritage for a, a little while, which is just, it's, it's awesome. It's a, a real blessing. And so for some of you, because of maybe that Catholic background, if I say, we're going to focus on Mary today, there might be a little bit of a, oh, I've sort of been down some of this road before. Mary's actually a pretty controversial figure throughout history, if you think about it, Uh, not by her own doing, but by what we've done with her throughout the years historically, because the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church have argued with regards to Mary for many, 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 many years, as you guys know. Um, now, what, they, what the Catholic Church actually believes about Mary, most of us are, tend to be a little more confused on. So I'm going to clarify some of this and point some of this out before we go into um, the story of Mary that we're looking at today. Here's where the Catholic Church, some of the things that they believe about Mary. Number one, they believe that Mary herself was conceived without sin. That means Mary never sinned in the same way that Jesus never sinned. She was conceived without sin. There was no sin nature given her in the same way that we inherit the sin nature of Adam, as Paul talks about this, um, that Mary was different, that in anticipation of her role as the mother of Jesus, um, that, that this uh, attribute of Christ was actually granted to her as well, which they would say explains why Jesus was born without sin, because he did not inherit the sin nature that the rest of us have inherited through through birth. Um, so that, that's what they believe. Um, number two, they believe that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. The during part confuses me a little bit. I'm not sure why you would need to clarify someone was a virgin during actual child labor. But anyway, um, before, during, and after, they believe that Mary was a virgin, that she'd never had any form of uh, sexual relationship with her husband Joseph before or after the birth of Jesus. They believe that Mary has a unique perspective and access to Jesus as any mother would. That in the same way that most moms know their kids in a very different and unique way than anyone else does, that Mary was granted that as well. But because of that, they believe that Mary plays a unique role in redemption as a mediator and advocate. So this is a quote from some of their doctrine. It says that Mary is the safest, easiest, shortest, and most perfect way to approach Jesus. And that in approaching Jesus through Mary, we allow her to make up for our deficiencies in prayer. So the idea is because we are sinful and deficient, then when we want to approach Jesus and pray, we have this sinfulness that we can't quite make up for no matter how hard we fight to try to earn righteousness. And so Mary, who doesn't have an earned righteousness, who who was born without sin, we're using her to cover our deficiencies as we approach Jesus. That's, that makes sense? That's what they would believe. And then finally, that Mary, because of her obedience to God's plan, has become a co-redeemer with Jesus. A a becoming herself, quote, the cause of redemption, not only for herself, but for the whole human race. Her own suffering being unique and experienced at the foot of the cross as her son suffered upon the cross. So the idea is this, that, that Mary plays a role in our redemption. Now, they don't believe that Mary is God and that Mary should be the object of worship in, in the way that worship is reserved for God himself, but they believe that she plays a significant role as co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. Now, my hope is, first of all, we are never going to be 
uh, um, arrogant in our, the way that we believe and like mock other people. We want to win people over, not belittle others with their beliefs. So I hope that this comes across with a certain amount of, of humility, but, but also firm confidence in the actual Word of God with regard to some of these things, right? Not in how smart we are, but in how clear God's Word is. That's where our confidence should be. Does that make sense, church? So my hope is that if you've been tracking with us for a while, you'd hear some of those things even throughout our study in Luke and go, well, I have a, there's some problems with that. So, for example, the idea of Mary being born without sin, well, the Scripture tells us what? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that there is none who is righteous, not one. There is none who are righteous. Uh, number two, that this idea of Mary being a perpetual virgin, there's difficulties with that in Scripture. There's a text we'll look at in just a little while in Matthew where you'll see it says that Joseph did not know his wife. And you know, guys, in the Bible, when it says know her, you know what it means, right? Like we don't need to go, no birds and bees discussions today. Okay, good. So it, when it says he knew her, that it's talking about that. And it says in the text that, that Joseph did not know her until after the birth of Jesus, which would be a weird way of saying that he never knew her at all, right? Um, not to mention the fact that the Bible seems to show us quite clearly that Jesus had siblings, so that's difficult. Um, and then also this, okay, yes, Mary has unique perspective on Jesus as the mother of Jesus. Of course she does. Like, she knows things about Jesus' upbringing that we've never had access to. Of course she would know things. But in that way, that doesn't mean that our access to Jesus has to go through her. In fact, the Bible upholds a completely different type of relationship, namely... That when Jesus died for your sins and you have, you have accepted him as your savior and, and the spirit of God has been placed into your heart, we have been granted adoption as sons, co-heirs with Jesus, no longer needing to access uh, Jesus through the righteousness of Mary. In, in fact, the Bible teaches us what? That we've been robed in the righteousness of who? Somebody knows this, come on. Jesus, like with confidence. Let's try that again. We have been robed in the righteousness of who? Jesus himself. We don't need Mary to make up for our deficiencies because Jesus has made up for all of our deficiencies, including Mary's. And so we don't need to go through. The Bible tells us because of Christ, we can go boldly into the throne room of grace and approach God as our Father. And even Jesus himself. Do you guys remember when when he was ministering, he said things like, hey, this is my family. Those who do the will of the Father, what did he say they were? Are my brothers, my sister, and he said, mother. So there's a new relationship that takes place. That means we don't have to go through Mary because of Jesus. All barriers uh, to not only grace, but righteousness, access to the Father, all of that stuff has been removed. We need no mediator because finally, Mary's not our mediator. Jesus is our mediator. The scriptures say now that he's in heaven and those things that we would view as deficiencies in our, in, our, in our life, our own sin, which we would agree with the Catholic Church that we have deficiencies in our character without question. But now Jesus is our advocate and mediator in heaven himself. And so when that stuff's presented, look at Jeff. Did you guys know that he did this and this and this? Jesus goes, nope, covered, paid for, record expunged, he's clean. Over and over and over. So there's no need to go through Mary to be able to have access to God. Amen? That being said, there can be too much of a pendulum swing by the Protestant church to separate ourselves from the Catholic church in the way that we view Mary. 
And what I mean by that is, of course, we don't want to venerate Mary into this um, deistic, almost like God, co-redeemer with Jesus type way. We don't pray to Mary. We pray to God the Father. And by the way, that's a huge part of it, right? Instead of praying to Mary, we're taught to pray in Jesus's name. You guys know what that means, right? Like that's not like the Christian magic word to make all your prayers come true, like a, 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 a sanctified version of hocus pocus or abracadabra. That's not what that is. What that is, is when we pray, we're, we're bringing these things to the Lord, and then we're saying, and we pray in your son's name, or in the name of Jesus, we pray. It, what you're saying is, based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the access that his sacrifice has given us now to your throne, we come to you, not on the basis of our holiness, but on the basis of his and of the approval that we gain through him, Jesus Christ, in his name, we pray. That's what that means. So we don't, need to, we don't need Mary for that, right? But at the same time, it would be very wrong of us to disregard Mary. To go, you know what? The Catholic Church has got it wrong and no one should pay any attention to Mary whatsoever because the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible esteems Mary. And I don't know about any of you guys in this room. My mom's actually here today. She's visiting us from North Carolina. Flew her in last week to surprise the kids for a little while. Um, like, you guys can make fun of me and say things about me all you want. It happens all the time. But you know how it goes, right? You start talking about mom, that's a whole different level, right? Right, guys? Like, you make fun of me all you want. Don't make fun of my mama. Like, that's how that goes, right? So why would we think Jesus would want us to disregard a mother that he loved? that he cared for even as he hung on the cross, loved, and wanted to make sure she was taken care of after his death. And so, so I want you to think about a few things that the Bible does say about Mary. Like, number one, let's think about this. Mary was clearly chosen for a remarkable task. Out of all the women who have ever lived anywhere in the world, God chose her. That's something. Amen? Like, that's something. She carried God. Like, those of you that have been blessed to be able to raise children and give birth to children yourself, remember how you're trying to be really, really careful and you're just worried, especially your first pregnancy? By, some of you guys have like five kids. By the fifth kid, you're just like, whatever. You're like playing football and riding bumper carts or whatever. But, but on the first one, you're like bubble wrapped, right? You're just like, protect me from the world, right? Imagine if you knew, oh, and by the way, the baby you're carrying is going to save the whole world. So uh, I want to be careful. No smoking, Mary right? Mary didn't smoke. I shouldn't say that. But, but look, she was chosen for a remarkable and important task. Let's honor that for a moment, right? Uh, number two, um, the Bible isn't negative with her. With, with the, the only time that you could say maybe the Bible paints Mary in an unfavorable light is when she wrestled with doubt about who Jesus was herself, because as he was making claims of being God, she and the rest of his birth family, they were, one, they were like, he's lost his, he's crazy. Some of the stuff he's saying, he's lost his mind, we need to get him out of there. But look, John the Baptist did that too, you know. John the Baptist, the one who at one point as he was in prison said, are you the one or should we wait for someone else? And what did Jesus say about him even in that very moment? He says to his disciples, no greater man has been born of woman than John the Baptist. So we should give Mary a little bit of slack on that. That's a difficult thing to, to come to terms with as you're living life out. Amen? So th that's true. But here's the truth too. Luke, or the Bible calls her, says that all generations will call her blessed in Luke 148, as we just read. And then Jesus himself, you got to understand, he did honor his mother. 
I mean, that, that was one of the commandments he had to uphold in order to earn the righteousness that we get from him. Honor thy father and thy mother. Jesus honored her. Jesus revered her, not deified her, but loved and honored her. And then this we have to recognize too, Mary desperately loved Jesus. She followed him all the way to the cross when many people had bailed. And that's worth recognizing and learning from. In fact, Mary has lots to teach us. You ever considered her last words? Have you ever noticed that? Well, it's not her last words. It's her last recorded words that we have. They're in John chapter 2. It's at the marriage feast where they're in Cana where they run out of wine. And, and Mary calls Jesus in and says, we, we've run out of wine. We need your help. And then she turns to the servants. And in, Luke cha- or excuse me, in John 2, 5, it says this. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That would be a good lesson for us. Amen? <laughs> That's the last recorded words that we have access to that Mary ever said. She said, hey, servants, hey, church, hey, everyone, whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's a really good Bible lesson right there. Amen? So we're going to look at Mary today. There's much, much, much that we can learn from Mary today. Not venerating her, not... Um, uh, esteeming her to a place of deity, but, but really understanding some of the things that she actually endured and some of the examples that she left for us. And really, some of the best is this. Here, here's the thing that I really want to sort of focus on as we move forward in this text with the idea of Advent. Um, if you want to work through the text that we read verse by verse, break all that down, we've done that earlier in the Luke's series. I I'm just want to bring something to your attention and give you something to chew on here. Think about this. We just read the text. Angel comes to Mary And the angel says to Mary, you are blessed among all women, and here's why. You're going to have a baby. The Holy Spirit's come upon you. You're pregnant, and the baby that you're going to give birth to is the Savior, the Son of God. It's going to save the world. That's what she's told. Now, there's something that we don't find in that narrative that if it were me, for example, that that announcement had come to, I would have had some questions. I would have been like, oh, Gabriel, that's awesome. I can't believe you picked me. You could have picked someone else. That's, that's awesome. I'm so excited you just told me this. This is great. And to have an angel appear right in front of me and, and tell this is an amazing announcement. Gabriel, could you do me a favor though? Would you mind going throughout the neighborhood out there and telling some of them too? Because there might be some problems with this down the road. So for those of you who don't understand why that would be, let's think about the culture. The Jewish culture at that time is a highly religious, moralistic, legalistic culture. Big time. And so here's the deal. Mary, who in this story, she's she's betrothed, or you would say she's engaged to marry Joseph. Now in that day, that was a big time legal process. Mother and father would get together, soon to be husband and wife would get together, and they would hammer out an actual contract, an actual marriage contract that would be put together. And then Mary would go back to live with her parents for maybe as long as a year. During that time, she is required to be completely pure, obviously, to be faithful to her future husband, Joseph. And in that setting, once the betrothal has already begun, once the engagement has begun, you can't just break it off because you're like, oh, this didn't work out. Give me my ring back. We'll just call it quits. You had to actually file for divorce to end an engagement. 
in that time. It was a huge process that would be there. And think about what it might have been like for a girl probably around 14 years old to be engaged but living at home, not married yet, highly religious, highly legalistic environment, and now she's pregnant. What's life going to be like for her? Living in a town where everyone knows you, where there's no secrets to keep, everyone knows everyone in Galilee, small town, small community, everybody knows everyone, and you're pregnant. You think she would be called most blessed among women by the average person that she's running into during those 10 months? It's not nine months, it's 10 months. I know, ladies. How many people you think said, Mary, wow, you're pregnant? Not even married yet, wow, but you're blessed. You think she heard that? I bet she heard whore. I bet she heard sinner. I bet she heard that kind of stuff. Think about this. In our Luke study, we looked at a story where Jesus comes into contact with a particular woman with a really bad reputation while, she, while he was having a meal in the same sort of area here, by the way, with a Pharisee. Take a look at the text here. In Luke chapter 7, verse 39, it says this, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So what's going on here in this text? Well, you remember the story? Jesus comes in for a meal with the Pharisees, and this woman comes in who is, it's declared she's a sinner. She has some sort of moralistic failure. We're not told exactly what all happened, but she has a horrible reputation in town. And she comes into the Pharisee's house where Jesus is there eating, and she's weeping, and her tears are falling on Jesus' feet, and she's using her hair to wipe the mud off Jesus' feet, and she's got this alabaster flask, and she's anointing his feet with this really expensive ointment, and all this is taking place. And the Pharisees there, who know what kind of woman she is, are saying, what kind of prophet is this? If he was a prophet, he'd be able to see what manner of woman this is. And there is no way he would allow her to be touching him like this. Why? Well, because then, like, they felt like if you had contact with someone with that sort of reputation, you've been defiled now. Many of the Pharisees and religious leaders, when they would walk through the town square or walk to the synagogue or wherever, the markets, they would hold their robes tight around themselves so that not even their clothing would touch someone who was in sin because they were, they were worried, I'll get their sin, if you will, on me. And I work so hard to be so righteous and look so good in front of everyone else out here, I don't want to get any of that on me. And this woman, oh, she's a mess, so I don't want any contact with her. So what do you think it'd be like for Mary? How do you think that announcement would have gone down? As they begin to see, wait a minute, Mary, are you pregnant? But you guys haven't, marriage hasn't, ooh, what happened? No, 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 don't worry. An angel appeared to me. Poof, was just there. And the angel told me, I'm not just pregnant. By the way, it didn't, wasn't with the man. The Holy Spirit did it. And this is going to be the Son of God Himself, the Savior of the world. That's who I'm carrying. What do you think that reaction would be like? How far you think, how many people do you think believed that story? Joseph didn't. Joseph didn't. By the way, guys, let's just be honest about it. Would you? <laughs> You're engaged to be married, 
and your fiance comes up to you and says, okay, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, I have not cheated on you. It was the Holy Spirit that came upon me. I now have God's baby within myself. I have God himself in baby form. That's so I, I haven't cheated on you. Everything's going to be okay. If you're Joseph, you're like, what kind of fool do you think I am? Are you kidding? What kind of moron do you think I am that I'm going to buy a story like that, Mary? Who was he? Because it wasn't me. So who was he? Who have you been with? Of course he would think that way. Take a look at the account in Matthew and look at the story, how, how Joseph is wrestling with this story himself. In Matthew chapter 1, we've got the text here. It says this, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You guys see it in there. Joseph is going, okay, I I don't want to put her to shame. I don't want to ruin her, but I'm out. And so what I'll do is I'll just find a way to maybe somehow I can sneak some paperwork through. Somehow, maybe quietly, I'm going to try to divorce her. I've got to get out of this because clearly this is not right. She's cheated on me. She's gone and done all this stuff. And I'm not going to have my name attached to this forever. So I'll just, I'll just try to quietly back out. And you'd feel that way too. What was it like for Mary to have to walk around in life for those 10 months with that sort of scarlet letter experience walking in front of everyone who would have looked down their noses at her for all, I mean, everywhere she went, she would be judged. And and not only then, even after, oh, there's Mary and Joseph with that baby. You know, you know the story of that baby, right? She even tried to tell people that she stood, oh, I didn't cheat, whatever, we know. Or saying that they did it themselves, whatever the case may be. What a difficult experience that would be. How did she endure that? And, and here's the thing, though. You know what else is missing from these narratives? Not just the questions I would have, like, hey, Gabriel, it would really, you would so do me a solid if you would show up to everyone else just like you did me and Joseph because oh, these people are talking. So you would really do me a solid if you could appear to everybody else and kind of cover me a little bit. doesn't happen. But you know what else isn't in some of these narratives? Her adopting shame, complaining, hiding, crying. I mean, at least we have no record of it. What we do have record of is singing and worship, joy and excitement. And that's even before we get to the manger part. Like, look ahead at chapter 2. Look at verse, uh, let's skip to, just for the sake of time, let's go to verse 15 of Luke chapter 2. The angels just appeared to the shepherds, right? And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. 
And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in their heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So let's think about this for a second. 14-year-old girl, remember, has spent 10 months living under this sort of scrutiny. And now the birth time's arrived. And where is she born? The definitions, the opinions of what it means about no room for the inn and what the manger was, they vary. Some people believe that it was in a cave, that there was nowhere for them to go. And so they were literally in a cave and the baby was actually laid into like a stone trough. Another option is a thing, it's called a caravanissary, I don't know, I can't pronounce the word. But anyway, a place where um, there were these makeshift, um, it's, it's almost like a hotel or maybe closer, you could relate it to like a hostel today that would have an open courtyard in the middle. And so if you were traveling through an area, you would come to these buildings, you would stay in one of the rooms around, you know, outside of the courtroom, and then you would bring your animal inside into the pen that's in the middle. It's open air all the way to the top so that your animals are protected and covered, um, you know, so they can't get away while you're sleeping at night. But it's open air to everyone, all these animals lying around, and there would be a trough right in the middle for the animals to be able to eat or drink water from while you're staying in the area. And so if that's the case, then the idea is, When she comes to this place, when Mary and Joseph come and there's no room in the inn, so they end up staying in the manger, it means all those rooms are full and they're in the middle, in the courtyard, open air, where anyone and everyone can see everything that happens, ladies, including the actual birth. Would that be okay with you? Or or guys... You're looking, you're looking out for your, your wife and your firstborn baby, and this is the experience that you have. Would that be all right with you? And yet she treasures these things? Like, how is it that Mary is able to worship and celebrate and say, I've been blessed in the middle of situations that were going to be really difficult and really hard in a cultural context where the land in general was under great oppression and great, great difficulty? How does that actually happen? I, I believe, personally, I feel like I've seen a little bit of an example or at least a, a sort of an analogy of what's actually happening here um, in, in my own life. This has been a really, really busy week. I told you that we had flown my mom into town this week. The reason that we did that, we, we surprised the kids because um, my 14-year-old daughter is playing varsity basketball for Cascade this year, and she's been in tournaments all weekend. And then my soon-to-be 13-year-old daughter is in the Nutcracker performances this year. And so my mom lives in North Carolina, had never been able to see um, Allie's ballet shows before, and has never seen my daughter play because it's her first year playing basketball for Cascade. And so we flew her out here for a week to be able to come and go to those games. We've been, we've been going all the way out to Hidden Valley High School, watching basketball games, and then rushing back here so they can go to the play, uh, ballet performances at night. It's been a really, really busy week. Um, but it'd be really easy to forget that it really wasn't like that in the beginning. So some of you know this story. You've heard it before. You can take a nap for like five minutes. Um, but I really don't know how to separate this, at least in my own personal experiences, from the story of Mary. So, so this is why I'm telling this. So check back in about five minutes. The rest of you got to hear this story, okay? So when we got married, my wife and I, for seven and a half years, were unable to have children. Um, there was a medical diagnosis that she had that was making it really difficult, if not impossible, to have kids. And for seven and a half years, 
nothing. And we were wrestling that, man. Like, if you have never known or experienced um, barrenness, whether it was just for a period of time or whether, um, God forbid, you're one who has never been able to have children, please understand you can't imagine the weight of that season. It is hard, really hard. And so I remember going through that process where, where we're trying and trying and trying. And not, not, I mean, there's just no children. There's no, doctors can't do anything about it. There's nothing that's going to happen. So we're looking into adoption, but we can't afford that because it's really, really expensive. And, and it was that time of life where like every friend we had was like the most fertile person on the face of the earth. Like I'm popping babies out left and right. Twins, you know what I mean? Like that's not even fair. It's just, that's just showing off at that point. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just got ridiculous. And, and so here's what was really hard for me. It was different for me because I don't experience some of the same emotions in the same way. What I ended up having to deal with was the mess that it would create. And so this, what I mean by that is this, like I would go to the mailbox and I would find um, baby shower invitations, which are obvious all the time, right? They're all decorated in pink envelopes or whatever the case may be. So I'd go to the mailbox and I'd sit there and go, okay, how well does she know this person? Because if I got rid of this envelope and she never saw the invitation, will she find out or not? And you go, what kind of a jerk husband are you? The, the, the reason is, is because I knew what it would lead to. It's going to lead to shopping at Target or shopping at Walmart in the baby section, buying things that you actually wish you were buying for your own baby, and then tons of crying, tons of weeping, and me as the husband and, and, and you know, not being a father and all that, not even really knowing what to do with all that. And so just trying to, how do we just fix it and pretend like it's not there? So over time, we ended up going down to uh, Mexico. We were down at the mission in Carmen Sardon that we here at Heritage support. At the time, it was under the oversight of Applegate Christian Fellowship, like I, the church that Peter John was in charge of. And, and so we were asked to go down there and take on a role at the mission. So we quit our jobs, sold our house, packed everything into a green Subaru, went down there and went from no kids to 20 handicapped kids at this mission down there, right? And so we're serving down there and, and, and everything in um, one day, uh, she was sick, and I was going to go to um, San Diego for the day. It was my day off of shift, and we were going to go to San Diego and do something. But she was sick, and uh, so I was going to go anyway because we need to do some shopping. And she says to me, hey, do me a favor. Um, would you buy a, buy a pregnancy test while you're up there? And I said no. Now, before you judge me, like I know, we've been here before. You know what I mean? Like I'm just like, it is a waste of money. We're not going to do this. Don't want to do it. So I was just like, no. And so me and my friend Tyler get in the car and we go to San Diego. So we hung out for the day up there. I think we went to Outback and had a steak, like, because, you know, beans and rice gets old after a while. We just had a great time up there. And on the way back, we come into Rancho San Diego and we go to Albertsons. It's the last grocery store before you go into Mexico. And so I'm in there shopping and just getting stuff that we need, you know, nothing, nothing major. And I'm not going to buy the pregnancy test. And then there's that little voice like, oh, don't be a jerk, dude. Just buy the pregnancy test. And I'm arguing, you know, the self-arguments. You know what it is. Nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, you should do it. You should do it. And to make matters worse, the pregnancy tests at the store are down that one aisle. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? That one aisle? You guys know what I mean, right? Like Tom Brady could be down there selling cars or giving cars away and signing autographs, but we're not going down that aisle, that one. I don't know. I just, I finally gave in, relented. It wasn't because I was trying to be nice. And I'm just like, all right, all right. And, and here's how I did it. 
I go down the aisle, and I'm like looking straight ahead, but eyes scanning side to side, looking for it as I go, and I bought it like this. <laughs> That's how I did it, because it's in that aisle. Guys, you know what I mean, amen? Guys know what I mean. You're not saying amen, but you don't, you liars, you know exactly what I mean. So I got the cheapest one. It was the generic pregnancy test. That's what I bought. And I go to the checkout and I'm praying for no price check or any of that kind of, you know what I mean? I'm just, I don't know why. We're weird, but we do. It's just what we do. And, and my friend Tyler comes up behind me and he's paying for his food there, which really bummed me out. I wanted him to go somewhere else because I don't want to have to answer stories or any of that kind of stuff. So I'm like, all right, so go through it. And I remember like, it, I, hope, it, I don't know if this is my creativity trying to trump my memory, but it seems like even when they scanned it, it didn't work that first time and they had to like over and over and over. And I'm like, oh no. Scan it. He's looking at me like, what? I'm like, just shut up, dude. And we're just, just go about it. Well, it's like a two-hour drive from there to back to the mission. And so I forgot that I'd even bought it, honestly. And so I don't know what I was doing. I was uh, sitting in the living room reading, doing something. I don't know. She's in, in the other room. Well, I, guess, I guess it'd be the bathroom. Um, but I, I hear, um, hey, uh, I think I might be pregnant. And so, you, I mean, you know what I thought then, right? Like, I should not have bought the cheap pregnancy test at that point, right? I'm just thinking, like, now I have really screwed everything up because now I've bought a junky, terrible pregnancy test, and now it's telling her that she's pregnant, and now i got to go find the real pregnancy test that's going to disappoint her now. And I'm just like, oh, what a nightmare. And so, so I tell somebody at the mission the next day, another couple that was there, and they actually had a pregnancy test laying around. Like, who stores pregnancy tests around? I, I don't know what was going on there, but they had one for some reason, and it was positive. And we would end up going into San Diego and get an appointment with a doctor and check. And sure enough, she's pregnant. This is crazy. But then you're like, what do I do though, right? I mean, I, we quit our job, no house, no health insurance, living in the middle of nowhere in Mexico. But down there at the mission, they're like, oh, no worries. Because you go to, to um, in San Diego, St. Vincent de Paul has a clinic there. And they'll do your prenatal stuff for free. And then you just go up to Oregon when it's time to have the baby. And Oregon Health Plan will cover you. And y- you won't even get bills for it. I'm like, sweet, free baby. This is awesome. Like, it's a good deal. Until I went to St. Vincent de Paul. And uh, I, I mean, I have, I have to share a little bit of my own. Like, coming from a not an affluent, but middle class, like we did okay upbringing throughout my life. And we never had to worry about going to a real doctor or an actual doctor's office or any of those sorts of things. Um, and and, and then, then having insurance as an engineer and doing all this different kind of stuff to now being at a St. Vincent de Paul clinic, which is also basically a homeless shelter that serves food and does medical checkups. And now this is where the prenatal care is going to happen for the first baby that we have waited for forever that we cannot lose. You know what I mean? Because there's a high rate for things like miscarriages and all that. And I'm like, man, if we lose this one, I'll never, I I, I don't even know what we do. And we're going there and, and I'm looking around and I'm like, these are not my people. This is not my environment. There's drugs and smell everywhere on people all around us, even sitting in the waiting room. You smell everything from urine to alcohol to pot to you name it. And, and the whole situation, the, the equipment's older. The doctors were great doctors that would donate time and come from other hospitals. But I'm looking at this myself and I'm like, I, mean, I don't know. And then this one day I got really, really sick. 
And we were supposed to go to San Diego for an appointment. And, and this particular week, I remember like the flu was like killing people in California. And we, down there, we had no TV, but AM radio. And so I'm just laying in bed sicker than I felt like I'd ever been before. And all the news is telling me about all these people in California that are dying from the flu. And I'm like, this is awesome. And so, so I couldn't go to the appointment, and I'm not even going near her or anything like that. And so um, some people from the mission there took Bronwyn up to San Diego to go and do her appointment. One of them was Peter John, who we just prayed for. One of them was Peter John's grandmother goes on this thing, right? Her name is Mary. Some of you have met her before. She's a, a dear woman that went home to be with the Lord a couple years ago. And so, um, so Mary ends up walking with her from where you have to park down this street in the neighborhood into this clinic, and she was terrified and mortified at the same time. She was holding onto her son's arm, like scared to death something was going to happen to her as she's going in there. And, and when she came back, she's telling me, she was like, this is not okay. That is not okay. You guys need to go back to Oregon. That place was horrible. I don't know how you guys do this. And she's going on and on and on about the environment that was there. But she actually said something, though, that I've always remembered. She said, the weird thing was, though I was terrified, your wife just smiled the whole time. And now you you women in here that have given birth before, you know how that works, right? Of course she did. Why? Because who cares what's going on around you? The thing that you have been desperate for for so long is finally here. That's the only thing you're looking at. That's the only thing that you're considering. Everything else just sort of fades away, right? I think that was Mary's experience. I think that as Mary was focused on this, first of all, she had a real and powerful interaction with God. An angel of the Lord had come to her, right? And now she's carrying Jesus. Like, think about that. She's carrying Jesus. In manger or wide open to the elements or whatever the case may be, in the end, where's her focus? It's where any mom who just gave birth's focus is. It's on the baby. Like, ladies, let me just ask you. Those of you that have had the privilege of giving birth before, what color was the doctor's shirt? What color was the wallpaper? Now, one lady from last service had the answer to me, so if you're one of those, like, stop ruining my analogy, okay? But for the rest of you, what color was that? What color was the floor? The nurse's scrubs? Do you remember all those kind of things? Of course not. But let me ask you this, moms. Do you remember looking into that baby's face for the first time when you held it? Remember that? I bet you remember what the eyes looked like the first time they opened and you saw them for the first time. I bet you remember the the, the almost pasty sort of when they're not quite cleaned off just yet all the way that's on their skin. And, and I bet you remember some of the colors and tones of the skin as there's a brand new baby. Just I bet you remember all that stuff, right? And the other stuff doesn't seem to matter anymore. I think that was Mary's experience. Guys, listen, there are some people in this room, and I've seen faces as we're even talking here that I know things about you and your experiences and what's going on, that there's some people in here that are going through some hard stuff. And this series, the Advent series, is the idea of hope even in the midst of darkness and difficulty. So let me share something with you quickly, and I'm going to wrap this up really quick. But I want to give you just a few examples, four things that Mary can teach you that I think will teach you how to live with hope in the midst of difficulty, okay? So the first one is this. And by the way, if you knew that old story, it's time to wake back up and chime back in, okay? So 
Number one, here's the way. Mary, number one, she knew that she had favor from God. He told her. He sent the message from the angel. Mary, blessed among all women, you have found grace with God. God has blessed you. You won't believe what's going to happen. She knew it. Now, as she walked around the community, maybe people called her whore. Maybe people called her sinner. Maybe people called her all sorts of names. But she knew the creator of the universe had said, that's my girl. And she had found favor with him. It's hard to get too concerned with what everybody else thinks when you start to realize how much God thinks about you. And you know what, church? You have favor with God. He's told you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He delights in you. He has plans for good and not evil. You can't even imagine the things that he has planned for those who love him. You know that you have the favor of God, just like Mary did. Number two, she knew that God keeps his promises. She knew that God keeps his promises. Even even Elizabeth in the prayer, remember what she says to Mary? She says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed are you, Mary, because you believed that God would do what he promised. And even Mary's prayer in Luke 1, verse 54, it says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. She knew that the promise that God had made long ago in Genesis chapter 12 was true. He kept his promise. Church, you can have assurance that God keeps his promises because he kept his promise then, and he's made you promises that he, he promises he will keep now. Like this one, for example, look at this verse. Maybe you just need to be reminded of it today. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. That means cancer experiences in the end will be worked out for good even when we don't see how it's going to work out now. That means whatever difficulties we've been through, whatever situations we walk through, in the end, God promises you all things will work together for good for those who love me. He promises that. And so you can hold that. You can believe that. You can have hope in that as you go through whatever it is you go through. Number three is this. Mary knew she didn't just have a baby. She knew she had a Savior. Mary knew she had a Savior. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Her hope was in Him, that there was one coming who would rescue her from everything that was going on in the world. And so do you. You have a Savior, not just a God who rules over you, but you have a God who is here and has come to save you. And one day he's coming again to save you from the rest of it. He saved you from your sin on the cross, and he will save you from the effects of death and the curse around us when he returns again. And we can hold to that with hope. So that when we go through difficulty here, we go, I know it's hard. I know everything's going on around me is a mess, but I'm not alone. I have a Savior. Amen, church? And then the last one, as we already noted, She had her eyes fixed on Jesus. Look at Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Guys, races can be hard. Amen? You ever run like a marathon, a long race? They're hard. They are difficult. You get, man, I, I ran a half marathon some years ago, man. Every time running down the greenway that there was one of those little off-ramps where you could go everywhere, it's like it called to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it, it, even in the difficulties that we go through in life now, when we're, when we're going through hard seasons or dark seasons and we don't see the finish line and we don't understand, Paul writes to us or the, writer, the author of Hebrews writes to us and says, listen, keep going. You can keep going and you can finish this race. How? By looking to Jesus. He's the author of your faith. Where did he author our faith, church? On the cross. When he came and died for our sins, he authored our faith. But the other part is he promises to also do what? To finish it. It's not done yet. So he didn't save you here to then leave you to your own devices in hopes that, I hope she does well in the end. It's going to be tough. I did that part. The rest, you're on your own. That is not what it says. It says he will finish it too. He has not given up on you. He is not done. So you keep your eyes on him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen, church? That's how you live with hope. Next week, we get to get all eschatological and everything because we're going to look at how the birth of Jesus, where he comes in a manger, compares to the return of Jesus when he comes on a horse with a sword to rescue us and keep us with him forever and ever and ever. It's going to be an awesome time. And then on, on Monday night, Christmas Eve night on the 24th, we celebrate and party. Amen, church? Let's stand and pray. God, thank you for this reminder of the hope that we have in you. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of goodness. Thank you, for Lord, for the promise of your son that has already been fulfilled and the promise that you are coming again. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder that we have a Savior, we have hope, that, that, that you approve of us, that you love us. And I just pray, God, that you might put that hope upon the faces of everyone here, no matter what it is they're going through. Lord, may we cling to you, set our eyes upon you, and may you give us hope and the ability to endure no matter what goes on around us, but with joy looking to you, the author and finisher of our faith. And Lord, may we spread that hope to a world that desperately, desperately needs it. So may your spirit come upon us that we might spread that gospel good news to the people we encounter as we leave this place. Thank you for this time, Lord. May you bless your people. We love you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.